Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week, we're talking to the man who's found his way into nearly 200 million homes, Netflix co-founder and CEO, Reed Hastings. We'll be hearing his thoughts about his rivals in the streaming market. Well, I fear them, I admire them. It's all a complicated mix of emotions. I know that competition is good generally, but when it's your own competition, it doesn't necessarily feel good. As the battle for eyeballs intensifies, I'll be asking him how he plans to grow the company with a saturated American market, something he needs to do because Netflix is $15 billion in debt. What we really focus on is, is the internet going to grow or shrink over the next 10 years? Well, people are pretty confident it's going to grow. Do people like a lot of television? I mean, all around the world, people like television. But not everyone likes the way that Reed Hastings runs the show. He calls his management style an experiment in radical candour. But he also has a reputation for ruthlessly dispensing with employees deemed not to cut the mustard. This distinctive business culture is the subject of his new book. It's like a professional sports team. Everybody's playing for their position, and that's how you get championship performance, is being able and willing to take the tough steps. Since its founding in 1997, the company has morphed from a DVD rental service to a streaming video upstart to the world's first global TV powerhouse. It's taken on TV networks and film studios and won. So this week we're asking, how much more can Netflix grow? Reed Hastings, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. Well, in your book, No Rules Rules, you lay out a very unconventional way that you run the company. You call it a unique cultural experiment. Now, there's a bold claim. What does that mean in practice? You know, for 300 years, the factory has dominated our economy. And then you look at the church, at the military. We've grown up with these top-down organizations. But when your company is really about idea generation, there's a different way to lead. And so we tell people, don't manage. Try to inspire. Try to support. And we do get some chaos and we do get some mistakes, but we also get some great ideas that help us evolve and stay relevant. Well, that sounds pretty nice, pretty hunky-dory, a place we'd all like to work. But then you say, well, average performance gets you kind of a redundancy notice at Netflix. You're looking for teams of star performers. Isn't it a recipe for being cautious if you're worried that you will get fired, if you're seen to not be performing at a level that seems a bit harder to figure out what is required of you. You know, we model ourselves on professional sports. I mean, athletes know that they can be injured at any moment, but they don't focus on it. They focus on how do they play the best game that they can. And our employees are similar. They focus on how do they have an incredible professional experience, learn a lot, and 
change the company for the better. You're known to be quite quick to fire people. Is that a fair reputation? No, I think we're very considered and thoughtful, but we do say that it's like a professional sports team and that everybody's playing for their position. And that's how you get championship performance is being able and willing to take the tough steps. Could be a bit of an urban myth, but is it the case if I were a Netflix employee, I'd just make up my own leave allocation? And how does that work? What does it motivate? You know, we don't have a clothing policy at Netflix, and yet no one comes to work naked. Lack of innovation. Yes, that's right. There's a, a societal consensus. And similarly, we encourage people to take holiday and to refresh and recharge, um, but we don't manage how much they take. So formally, it's unlimited holiday. Does that mean that junior employees would tend to take less? When you looked at how the average works out, because... One thing we know is you've got great data around everything at Netflix. So have you worked out what the consequence is of that apparent free-for-all on hours and vacation? Well, because we don't measure vacation, you know, we don't have a formal system. But I would say we encourage everyone to set a good example, take vacation and to think broadly and, you know, also to read and exercise and, you know, just generally be healthy. Let's talk a bit more about the the offer that you put forward at Netflix and you're known to be very hands-on in, in what appears on our screens. How do you go about choosing the programmes that you will stream? And if you could say what motivates your commissioning? Well, you know, we have a very uh, diverse and distributed leadership team that has full commissioning power. So in every country, there's a leader who makes those decisions. And we encourage people to take bets. Some of the shows really work out, like uh, sex education, and uh, other ones are not as popular. But that's okay. We manage it, you know, really by the willingness to take risks and to take bets on something that's new and fresh. You've taken a bet on a couple of newcomers to streaming channels, not so much newcomers uh, to the rest of the world in the form of Meghan and Harry in a big deal that you've just uh, signed off with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. By the way, are you calling them the Duke and Duchess? Or are you all on first names now? No, I, I think it, I think it's, well, for me, it's Prince Harry. So, prince yeah. Harry, right. You're, you're, uh, you're, you're hanging on to there's that. A, right? There's a prince there, but a, a prince and a first name. So, uh, what, what is the, you know, what's the range, what's the cost of that deal, the various big figures being floated about, but I wondered if you could confirm them. And what will make it worthwhile? Well, I think what will make it great is if they tell incredible stories that help change the world. They're very focused on, you know, how to make a positive difference in this new role. We want to be supportive of that and to produce some amazing entertainment that the whole world will tune into. And presumably to also talk a bit about their own story. Absolutely. I mean, you know, they want to have their um, new life, you know, be well understood. And that'll be, uh, you know, a fascinating look. Short, short answers. Do you think that the palace, somewhere which we mean Buckingham Palace when we speak in London, should be slightly quaking in its boots? I mean, it does sound like you know, the crown with the extra you know, vava room that a big deal with Netflix could put behind it could be high octane, could be a bit risky for the British royal brand. I don't think so. I mean, you know, really, uh, when you look at uh, what we've done with The Crown, that, of course, uh, Peter Morgan is writing, I think it's very thoughtful. And, you know, what we want to do is tell stories that really everybody wants to see. You know, Harry and Meghan, it's a really fascinating story of, you know, human evolution. 
So you're known for data-driven decisions, presumably or this one as well had uh, data considerations in the background, how many people you can reach. Um, where does that leave creativity? Because to level with you, really, Reed, I mean, this is something I hear a lot from program makers, including some who uh, have made programs for Netflix and for other big streaming services, that they think over time that focus on data and the algorithm damages or impedes their creativity or narrows it to outside, perhaps, their original intentions. What do you make of that? Well, it's a good thing for uh, competitors to say about us, but it's not true. I mean, if you talk to Peter Morgan about The Crown, if you talk to producers of sex education, it wasn't because of any particular data that they did certain casting decisions. You know, we really support the creative process. Most of our industrial culture is not really focused on creativity. It's focused on error prevention. And that's good if you're an airline or a hospital. Okay, but if you're a creative organization, what you want to do is make it safe for people to make mistakes and to try things. But as a manager, particularly a manager at the scale you are and the influence of every decision that you and your teams make, that does impact on the creative process, on what people feel they should write, offer, want to film, who should star in it, etc. So, for instance, the, the so-called kind of two-minute rule of something counting as a view if it's viewed for two minutes, that must have some sort of impact. And you could see why some people would think that that's adverse. Yeah, well, the BBC has sort of a one-second rule for iPlayer. That is, if you play it one second, they count it as a play. You know, we don't want to do one second because we feel like, you know, you might accidentally click on something. Um, but, you know, again, on the Internet, uh, it's fashionable to think like it's all about data and it's all perfect. And it's really still a, a, a messy creative process in the same way that commissioning you know, for Channel 4, BBC One is. But I do notice that often in the second series, there seems to be a quality drop-off in some of your drama. And I would cite a few examples. You, uh, I would say, Dead to Me, which is, I was so in hock to it. And I felt slightly fell through the floor in the, the second series. Stranger Things might be another example that seemed to tail off. Is that a possible, and I'm not saying this is anything that is intended, but that that focus on capturing audiences and getting their data means that once you've got them, what happens in series two, three, beyond is less important to you. I would disagree that season twos um, in general are a lower quality, whether it's, you know, season two of The Crown, since we've been talking about that, or any of our other shows. If we miss, which is inevitable sometimes, it's not really because of the data. It would be more because the budget got too big or, you know, someone wanted to push the story in some new direction. And do you, are you absolutely clear what's a hit and what's a miss? Or is it a little bit by the, the data is obviously guiding you with a balance between the data and your gut, the sort of, I feel this, I'd go on with it even if the numbers aren't right. Would you do that? You know, fundamentally, Netflix is about pleasing people. And we want to produce content that you, our members, want to watch. And so we measure it as how much watching does it get compared to how much it costs. And in that way, we try to spend our, our members' money well, producing content that they really want to watch. And that concept of the second season or the returning season, is this something a, a showrunner who's worked a lot with you made this comment? It wasn't only about Netflix, but I thought it was interesting. The concept of second season or seasons in general will go away because nobody cares about what's happening over time anymore. They're teaching viewers to acquire attention deficit syndrome, which makes sense if two minutes of a view is considered to be a view and is considered to be a success. 
fair point. Streaming services in general, of course, not just yours. You know, one of the reasons that Netflix has become so popular is that we defy conventional wisdom and we provide people, you know, great series that uh, go on and on. It's hard to produce a great long-running series. And so I think in all of these, we want to build something that people have a relationship with the characters and then go on that basis. Now, what about diversity? Who appears on screen? Who's making the shows? But also the diversity of kind of thought and, and vision. You have made challenging programs, or probably a few more of those than, than there were a while back. But if I look to your three most popular series, I think in 2019, that was Stranger Things 3, despite whatever I thought about it. The Witcher, that big sort of fantasy about the... Uh, mutant monster bounty hunter and the umbrella academy superhero show so do these programs which seem to be really worth powering your audiences how do they balance off against a desire to put weight behind perhaps different ways of looking things and more challenging output well we have an incredible diversity of programming our very largest shows are less than one percent of what a typical member watches in a year so they watch many, many different things. You've got 200 million subscribers also uh, worldwide. And given the size of that audience, there's also something of a responsibility in the, the broader cultural and, and broadcast uh, debate. The charge of a monoculture growing up around Netflix is perhaps something that you need to look at in a world where we need to understand each other more and perhaps stretch our own comfort zones. Does it ever keep you awake? You know, the breadth of content we offer is broader than anyone, you know, has ever seen before in the past. So, you know, it's the opposite of a monoculture to really bring a wide variety of shows together. Our fundamental responsibility is to entertain people. There's so much difficulty in the world. And Netflix is kind of an antidote to all of that, where you get to watch a story about some other situation and just uh, really escape into it for a couple hours. You've had a silver lining to the cloud of COVID-19, and that's this huge subscriber uh, surge as we were glued to our sofas even more. Uh, 26 million up to June 2020. Spectacular. How much can Netflix still grow? This was the subject, and you may have seen it, of a big cover story that, that we, we ran with our own in-house uh, experts doing the, the analysis on that. And one of the theses that uh, emerged from that was that growth in America was going to be difficult for you and you, you would need you need to sort of basically crunch around the world like that mutant monster sort of hoovering up markets for new growth coming from overseas. Do you think that's a correct analysis, broadly speaking? No, I think that's a horrific metaphor. Um, of crushing, I added the metaphor. Yeah, so um, we definitely want to serve people all over the world because then, you know, we want to create a broad community of storytelling. But it's very competitive. I mean, Disney Plus has grown to over 60 million members in, you know, less than one year. And it took us, you know, 12 years to get to 60 million. I mean, they're on a phenomenal growth. So there'll be a lot of competition as everyone realizes the internet is the way to go. And does that mean more focus outside the U.S., just to put the, the, the question with a slightly straighter face? We've always had a, a big focus of doing content from anywhere in the world to everywhere. What about the Chinese domestic market? That seems to have been hard uh, for you to, to crack. Do you think you'll be in China within five years, 10 years? No, I mean, I, China uh, blocks Netflix as they do YouTube and they closed down the Disney streaming service that used to be in China. They closed down the Apple streaming service that used to be in China. 
So unfortunately, uh, they're closing themselves off from Western media. So there's uh, no chance. Uh, so we're focused on the entire rest of the world, but no China. Our China Affairs editor, Gadi Epstein, had this question. He said, do you still feel or sense pressure around you not to offend China in Netflix commissioning and production of content because stars and directors would fear offending Beijing, regardless of the, of the platform and, and your honest assessment that it's, it's not the place for you? I don't notice that. I mean, it, it is true that we don't want to do simplistic vilification and we don't want to, you know, fall into those uh, tropes. But there's no special consideration about Chinese sensibilities. We get to program for the whole rest of the world and to do that really well. It is a fine line to tread, isn't it? Because such a lot of drama is sometimes about enjoying a bit of vilification or a view of of, of someone that is challenging or irreverent or even downright right rude. And one of the things that's occurred to me at the moment, having uh, teenagers growing up, is where do you stand on the amount of hard drug use in, in drama, the sort of normalisation? Although it's creating, obviously, age of some great drama, it bleeds into the, the zeitgeist and makes something perhaps appeal normal and appealing, even if the context of the drama says something different. You know, when my son was 12 years old and doing uh, first-person shooter video games, it was really terrifying because, you know, here's this nice, sweet kid shooting and killing and the blood year by year as the consoles got better, got more and more realistic. And you had to wonder, is that going to turn him into a violent super killer? And it really hasn't. And so what I would say is whether it's violence, whether it's sex, whether it's uh, hard drug use, is humans have a remarkable ability to separate fantasy from reality. And we all watch, um, you know, a lot of superhero gun smashing, you know, action, and it doesn't make us go imitate that. So I wouldn't worry directly about the imagery. And the positive is creating conversation. It is great to talk with kids about what they're seeing and how they think about it. And so it opens up a conversation that, you know, it's difficult to have in many families. You sound quite libertarian on this issue. Is that the way that you see yourself? You know, I'm mostly humanist. I want a great society. And when I think about the concerns that people had about video games in the 90s and 2000s, and then, you know, I had through my own family and how they don't seem to manifest themselves, whether that's about romance, whether that's, you know, about war, it doesn't make people go out and imitate it. I wonder um, if you're right about, the, about whether that applies, that read across from games and violent games where I you know, hear your, your argument. I think the data sort of largely bears you out, or at least what we're able to research, uh, you know, longitudinally. Is that really true of drug use? Smoking, you did take down the amount of smoking in Netflix dramas, if I remember that story correctly. So someone must have thought it had an influence. In smoking, there are studies about imitating, you know, sort of the coolness factor. You know, outside of period pieces where we use smoking, we don't try to set it in uh, context. So you're right that, you know, there are difficult choices that we make, but we don't want to use it gratuitously. We want to use it when it's artistically inherent. So that is uh, a point. You could make the same point about drug use, couldn't you? You can. um, And we have chosen to, you know, allow drug use where, again, it's relevant to the story, but it does want to be relevant. And so there there are difficult choices that uh, we make throughout what we do. Because we fundamentally want the content to be incredibly entertaining. Now, one reason that you have to to grow is because you have 
borrowed very heavily to finance filmmaking as of uh, June Netflix is just over $15 billion in debt. And you're surely relying on growth to, to service that. I mean, does that occasionally make you kind of wake up thinking that's a lot of overhanging money owed? That is a lot of money for sure. But uh, fortunately, we have so many members around the world that uh, our bonds uh, are all uh, traded up. That market that finances that activity is uh, very happy with the results for Netflix. And that, as you say, that is, it's traded up. The company needs money to bank real new content, but there are still longer standing concerns that that rise in, in, in revenues won't offset a slowing subscriber growth in America, the biggest market. Well, if there are concerns, they're not shared by the bondholders, who again are, are voting with their feet uh, to trade up those bonds. So what we really focus on is, you know, is the internet going to grow or shrink over the next 10 years? Well, people are pretty confident it's going to grow. Do people like a lot of television? I mean, all around the world, people like television. So, you know, you put those two things together, internet and television, and there does seem to be an opportunity for Netflix to continue to offer more shows and more different types of entertainment. And how many big streaming services can the American market realistically support? I'm thinking of Jeffrey Katzenberg's much-fated short video subscription venture, Kubi, which has, has floundered. Did you learn anything from watching that struggle? And is there any future for it? You know, the market's always open to innovation. TikTok has grown from, you know, very small three years ago to enormous. And so there's always new ideas. That's great for consumers because you get many choices. And so whether it's uh, TikTok and YouTube or whether it's uh, Netflix and Disney, um, there is a, a lot of competition in the market. And Disney, you think, has learned new tricks pretty quickly. You sound like you're something of, a, of an admirer about what's been going on over there. Well, I fear them. I admire them. Um, it's all a complicated mix of emotions. There's nothing I can do about it. I know that competition is good generally, but when it's your own competition, it doesn't necessarily feel good. Um, but uh, they have done an impressive job. Has it shown you any weaknesses in the Netflix model? You know, they're very strong in kids and family, and uh, we want to strengthen our offering there. So we are improving and putting more investment into kids and family animation. Uh, we've got a, one of our first in-house developed animated movies, Over the Moon, coming out uh, shortly. So uh, we'll continue to invest uh, where they're very strong also. And of the major streaming players, who do you think will be the, the survivors? And we're looking at problems that AT&T has had with Warner Media. HBO Max didn't exactly get off to flying start. A lot of key executives were, were, were dumped pretty quickly. Is that an example of where you can see an endgame for certain kinds of streaming content and certain sort of companies who are trying to get into it? Well, if you look at the book market, if you look at the magazine market, there's always new offerings coming. And I think it'll be like that, which is where there's fresh stories to be told that people want to watch. Then you can address a, a very big and global opportunity. And if you look at the BBC in particular, you know, the iPlayer was one of the first public broadcasters to have an Internet service. They've had the iPlayer for over a decade. And they lead the public service market all around the world with the use of the iPlayer. So that's been uh, a great asset for the BBC. And eventually, I think the BBC will be very strong, but entirely consumed over the Internet. 
And so think of it as just an evolution from linear to on-demand. And do you think that's the direction that you'd advise the new Director General Tim Davey to move in? Well, uh, he's doing all the right steps, as as Lord Hall did before, um, you know, of strengthening the Internet and and the iPlayer usage has continued to rise. You know, it set all kinds of new records over COVID. So I think they're doing all the right steps. And then, you know, the natural partnership for us are shows like Bodyguard, where they uh, launch it in the UK and then we launch it outside of the UK. And what about the, the BBC licence fee model? It's often vaunted in the BBC debate, which goes on endlessly uh, in, in Britain, is it should be more like Netflix. It was basically moved to a subscription model. Or would you be a defender of the idea of the, the effectively a tax, a, a levy on everyone to watch the BBC? Well, I would like Netflix to get the BBC model. We should have a, to be mandatory membership in the UK for Netflix. That would be great. Yeah, we'll see if we can get that one off the ground, Fee, but that's, that's not right. quite that's an answer. <laughs> you know, the license fee model gives them a broad programming ability and importance. And so it's been a bedrock and I'm sure will continue to stay bedrock in, in what they do to serve the British public. So it's a very unique platform in that way. Will there ever be ad support, an ad supported tier on Netflix as we're talking about models and, and how, whether you're a public broadcaster or a major player like yourself in streaming, how do you future proof for yourself? Could you envisage doing something where it's cheaper and free, and but you had to watch the ads? And I think you've said no to that in the past, but are the facts changing around that? Well, the facts are we continue to grow um, with our model, which is really just focus on our members, not on advertisers. And so our members get to watch without adverts um, interrupting the show. And that works well for us. And then, you know, we're not competitive for revenue with ABC and CBS in the States. Again, it's a somewhat a focus and specialization. And we're very focused and specialized in commercial free and our members seem to like that. You know, the next big thing for Netflix is really uh, developing our international productions. We're building out in the UK, we're building out in Spain, we're building out in Japan and Brazil. And, you know, that's the big push for the next couple of years is to really be producing everywhere in great quality and high volume. High volume, yeah, that brings us back, I suppose, as we you know, come towards the close to what happens to that data and the concerns that people have about data and data collection and how much you have promised investors on monetizing data collection. How transparent can you be about that? Well, it's a good point because we've told our investors we don't share data. Uh, we're not doing advertising. We're very protective of the data. And we can be because we're not in the advertising market. We're not trying to monetize people. We're just trying to please members. And so everyone's data stays just within Netflix. And we don't uh, buy data. We don't sell data. We're not. And we're staying very far away from, from all of that world so that consumers can feel comfortable. Netflix is where I go for entertainment. And it's safe and comfortable. Coming back to a view of management theory that it does feel quite distinctively like something that you would want to wrap your, your arms around. But I wondered, are you the same kind of manager that you were when you made your way up to the head of one of the world's top streaming services? What have you learned and what's been the painful learning? Well, the painful learning was in my first company, which was about 30 years ago. Uh, it was a technical software company. And I wrote about this in the book. Um, every time someone made a mistake, I put a process in place so we didn't make that mistake again. And over time, we came in filled with process 
and we had the people who liked following process. And then the market shifted and we were unable to adapt because people weren't thinking about the right thing for the business. They were thinking about following the process. And that's when I realized that if you optimize for efficiency, you don't have much flexibility. And for a creative business that's going to change a lot, it's better to focus on flexibility and tolerate less efficiency, kind of managing on the edge of chaos. A defense line I'm going to use if anyone ever brings up an efficiency question about my department, perhaps I can give you a ring and you just put you on. Absolutely. We're, we're standing by. Last question. Got to know, who would play you in a Netflix drama about Netflix? I suppose it would be. And how much would they be paid? Well, <laughs> we could hope it would be Brad Pitt and um, he would be paid a lot. That's for sure. That's for sure. Story of Netflix on Netflix, it's bound to come around, isn't it? Thank you very much for joining us. Reed Hastings. Pleasure. And we'd love to know what you think. Brad Pitt to play Reed Hastings? Is Netflix a boon to our sofa habit or creating a global broadcasting monoculture? Is it just me with season two fatigue? And would you tune in to The Harry and Meghan Show? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. For your best introductory offer, do go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.